From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. A few years ago, NPR correspondent Maria Godoy went to Richmond, Virginia, to tell the story of redlining. There, she met Tori Edmonds, who has lived in the same house in an African-American neighborhood on the east end of the city for more than 60 years. That came actually came home from the hospital into this house. Edmonds says when she was a little girl, the neighborhood was a place of tidy homes with rose bushes and fruit trees, and residents had ready access to local businesses. You know, we had a bowling alley, a movie theater, several grocery stores. Eventually, her parents tried to get a loan so they could get new windows for the house. They were rejected. And for a long time, the house was deteriorating. And that's what you see with a lot of the homes in the community. If the bank's not loaning, then things deteriorate. This is a classic example of what happened in cities across the United States as a result of redlining, a practice that made low-rate bank investments available to people in predominantly white neighborhoods and withheld it from minority communities. Jobs didn't matter. Credit history didn't matter. Collateral didn't matter where you lived and who the people were who lived around you determined whether a bank would give you credit. Now, this practice was made illegal 50 years ago, but researchers who have analyzed maps of redlined neighborhoods across the United States have shown that the effects of that lack of investment continue to reverberate today. Home values are lower. Home ownership rates are lower also. And because of those two things, people who live in these areas still have a harder time accessing credit, even though redlining itself is against the law. But these effects aren't just seen in home ownership and home values. These neighborhoods are more likely to have been split by noisy and dangerous freeways, which means they're more polluted. Those stressors have resulted in higher rates of chronic diseases like asthma and hypertension. And now, as we begin to get our bearings in a world that's forever altered by climate change, researchers are seeing another impact. Susceptibility to heat waves and flooding. The connection might not at first seem intuitive, but the data is very clear. And one of the people who's been investigating this connection is Jeremy Hoffman, an interdisciplinary climate scientist at the Science Museum of Virginia in Richmond. He's also the co-author of a recent paper on the long-term effects of redlining on environmental risk exposure. Jeremy Hoffman, welcome. Thank you so much, Matthew. It's a pleasure to be here. Jeremy, you've traced your personal connection to the way that weather and climate impacts human lives back to one of your favorite childhood activities, one of mine too. Tell me about how you started making the connection between climate and fishing. Yeah, so that's uh goes all the way back to when I was wearing, you know, flood shorts. I think that was maybe a a little bit of a looking to the future. I've seen this picture. It's not flattering, my friend. <laughs> Those <laughs> hey, that hairstyle is almost back in style, I swear. <laughs> um no, so my family would go on vacations um to northwestern Wisconsin and my dad taught me how to fish his uh my my uh, grandfather his father-in-law um taught him how to go fishing for um a variety of different 
species. And the favorite one that we would have for breakfast um, was called a walleye. And they love living at the bottom of the lake. They like it where it's cold. And over the last 35 years, the lakes in Wisconsin have warmed up so much that actually the, the walleye are struggling to reproduce. And that's, that's a shame because walleye are really good eating. They are extremely good at eating. And in fact, they form the basis for a lot of these small towns kind of ecotourism um, businesses. So the scientists got involved and the only fundamental change over that time period has been their temperature. So I've seen just in my in my lifetime, which, you know, uh, is uh, is relatively uh, short compared to many people um, that, you know, climate change has had a, a demonstrable impact on the ability for me to share um, you know, generational experiences <laughs> with my, uh, you know, my parents and grandparents, and then looking to my niece and, and, uh, potentially her children, you know, how, will we be able to have walleye with eggs in the morning, um, in the future? And that's entirely in our hands at this point. I think this is interesting because we tend to talk about climate change as something that's going to happen to us eventually, but you've pointed out that Nobody on this planet who's under the age of 40 lives in a world where natural variability hasn't already been altered by human-caused warming. That's right. You know, we tend to, and we have heard for a long time, climate change is not happening now and it's not happening here um, you know, we tend to hear about it affecting people far away from us and it's, and when it happens, it'll be distant into the future, but scientists have reliably tracked the fingerprint of human activities on present day extreme weather events. I mean, this is fairly settled science that, um, it, that extreme weather events, like some recent hurricanes have been made worse, more intense and more likely because of human caused climate change. And, Probably the best statistic. Yeah, I think it's if you're 35 years or younger, uh, you've not lived on the planet when the global average temperature for a given month was below the 20th century. None average. of those months. <laughs> not zero oh, months. Wow. It is it is quite dramatic to imagine, you know, and really reflect on why younger generations are so invigorated around environmental issues when you think about the the very different world in which they are coming of age than just a generation before them. One of your first memories of a heat wave, maybe I think your first memory of a heat wave uh, took place in Chicago in the mid 1990s. Tell me about that experience for you. Well, in 1995, I was growing up in the Northwestern suburbs of the city of Chicago. That summer in July, one weekend, temperatures were just off the charts. And it turns out that weekend, I very distinctly remember having, you know, a yard party with neighbors and some of my family and slip and slide, bomb pops, air conditioning, probably the most important piece of that. But that heat wave is actually really famous. It's the, you know, kind of Chicago heat wave of, of the summer of 1995. And Temperatures were above, you know, 100 degrees in the heat index for many dozens of hours over the course of the whole weekend. And it had devastating impacts, not only for human health, but things like infrastructure, roads and bridges were struggling in the heat. And then all of that superimposed on a very real health risk with almost 800 people dying over the course of that weekend. And and here as a as a young boy, and I assumed a, a 
you know, maybe moderately privileged young man, you were just having the time of your life during this thing. Well, yes. I mean, that's by far the the take home point for me now is upon kind of disaggregating who died in that heat wave, those 800 people or so, um, you know, many of them were elderly members of the black community in southwestern uh, Chicago. Um, many of these folks that died lived in underventilated homes and were actually afraid of opening their windows to get breeze because of rampant crime in their neighborhoods. So my safe, you know, mostly white, mostly affluent suburb um, was afforded protection by the systems, you know, undergirding uh, resources and and wealth in our country at the expense of black life in different parts of Chicago, only a few miles away. And that's really interesting because I think a lot of people, you know, they they know about the urban heat island effect and and they think, oh, okay, well, you know, cities in general are getting hotter and maybe more privileged areas have access to things like better water pressure and better ventilation and and air conditioning. But what your research has shown is that different parts of the city are actually impacted differently. What are the variables there that that really affect a part of the city becoming hotter than another part that's just, you know, a, a half mile or a mile away? Right. So the, the way to think about this really is the difference between two extremes. And it's really the, the kind of experience that we all have in our neighborhoods and in our cities. So on one side is the big, empty, dark asphalt parking lot in the middle of the afternoon. There's not a tree around, no building shade, and you are just baking in this you know sea of concrete. That Let's compare that extreme to on the totally opposite side, the most shady park space that you can imagine in your neighborhood. Those two extremes really bracket all of the combinations of urban form or the types of designs that a neighborhood can have. And it turns out that that difference is rooted in urban planning decisions made over a, almost a century ago, if not before. And this is this is the difference between green-lined places and red-lined places. Green-lined places had those investments. They were neighborhoods that were built in to begin with. And then the red-lined places didn't have those sorts of investments. And essentially, all it takes to see this uh, association is to overlay maps of temperatures over maps of red-lined neighborhoods. That's right. Um, you know, after we had several, you know, heat island campaigns in cities and um, starting to see the same populations in neighborhoods exposed to higher temperatures, you know, you start to question what's the what are the systematic relationships between these places that are in different cities? And, you know, it all kind of goes back to this urban planning uh, and housing policy, um, at least in some ways, known as redlining. It tended to be that wealthier, wider communities settled on the western side of cities, potentially to get out of the way of industrial pollution. And then at the time of redlining in the 1930s, this practice would have locked in those differences um, such that the wealthier and wider communities within a city were advantaged environmentally by the kinds of amenities that they had in the large yards, much more trees, given a plenty of room to grow versus the redlined communities, which were predominantly lower income, laboring communities of color 
we're not we're living in places that were very much environmentally disamenitied or closer to things like manufacturing. In fact, words describing those neighborhoods use things like odors and um, sewers and paved and even hot at that time. And so in the present day, those kind of locked in place neighborhoods uh, echo today in the present day as these huge temperature disparities only a few miles away from one another. I want to go back to this idea that this east side, west side thing, because it comes down to the predominant winds, right? Like across North America, predominant winds or across the northern hemisphere, predominant winds are moving mostly uh, west to east, right? So these are westerly winds. And that's that's what some research has suggested impacted decisions on where people would live, because that's where the pollutants from from industrial centers would go. Yeah, that's right. The the uh, the kind of uh, theory here is around uh, residential sorting and uh, kind of clustering of wealth on western side of cities and the the east side. Kind of this um, the really the sociologist um, Stephen DeBerry talking about the wrong side of the tracks tends to be the east side of cities. A really amazing TED talk which breaks this down in that you know a lot of the communities that we know are really disadvantaged, marginalized, depressed, have high rates of crime, tend to be on the eastern side of a city. And this may be due to the spin of the earth itself in that predominant wind direction in the northern hemisphere and in the southern hemisphere um, is from west to east. So you have these these inequities that set up as a result of wind direction, and then they are further... uh, amplified by redlining and so you just have this like like impact after impact where these things are getting calcified that's right and immediately following redlining you know only a few decades after that we have urban renewal and that further intensifies environmental disamenities in formerly redlined neighborhoods through the construction of the interstate highway system um, which was really a, a tool for moving uh, white commuters out of those cities and into the suburbs. So really, you just see this intergenerational buildup of environmental disparity that in the present day means real negative health outcomes for these neighborhoods at the, you know, while protecting those wealthier, wider communities that were greenlined. I want to talk now about one to add something to this although like i mean it's it's just one thing after another right and i feel like i feel like we're piling on but it is indeed piling on let's talk about the fact that climate change isn't just making our world hotter it's also making it wetter um and and we're going to get back to the red line neighborhoods in a moment here but i know some people might see me feels a little counterintuitive to say the world is getting hotter and wetter. So can you unpack that a little bit? Absolutely. So the uh, the, the really unique thing about our atmosphere is that its ability to be a sponge increases as it warms up. So this is known as the Clausius-Clapeyron relation. And basically what it says is for every degree Celsius or about 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit warming in the atmosphere it should be able to absorb about 7% more water vapor. So thinking about that analogy as a sponge, when you wring that uh, sponge out 
there's a little bit more, or in some, in some cases, much more rain falling over the same amount of area and potentially in a much shorter duration of time. So what this kind of um, main impact, especially in, in the Southeast region of the United States where I live, are these flashier, more intense precipitation events have gotten stronger due to climate change and then are expected to continue as we incrementally increase uh, global warming. And the result of this is that cities across the country are at greater risk of flooding now than before. And it looks like they will be at even greater risk in the future and using a similar process to what you showed with heat waves and redlining, you've shown that redlined areas, historic areas of redlining were more prone to floods as well, are more prone to floods as well in our warming world. Yeah. When we think about these neighborhoods, uh, when we think about cities, you know, these paved over areas versus those more natural landscape, if you pour water on that parking lot, what happens? It doesn't go anywhere. Uh, if you pour enough of it, it rushes downslope into the sewer system. Uh, and so what those paved over areas work as is a funnel. Whereas those green places, you know, you pour a cup of water on a grass lawn or a tree, it absorbs it. So when you think about a city overall, places that have much more of that funnel then are at much greater risk of a more intense rainfall event turning into flash flooding. And so by looking at this um, data set that kind of projects present and future uh, flood risks, we were able to show that uh, across the United States, on average, these formerly redlined areas have more parcels of land that are at a higher risk of flooding due to uh, rainfall or coastal um, flood risks. So it's the same story, just with a different stressor. Now, one of the things that some cities have tried to do to alleviate some of the impacts of redlining is to green up these areas. I think there's a lot of irony in those words alone, but there's also a lesson in unintended consequences to these efforts as well, where cities have gone on in and said, we're going to invest in making these historically disadvantaged areas greener by planting trees and shrubs and bushes. Talk about that. Well, too many times, I think that what we try to focus on in the environmental world sometimes is is kind of like silver bullets or, um, you know, the, the one thing on the menu at the, at the buffet that we really want to try. Right. And right now, many, many cities rightfully so are looking at how these land use decisions have affected the green amenities in these places. And if you do these things, uh, without taking into account the very real consequences of, um, things like adding to already rampant gentrification, housing is super expensive right now in virtually every city. And if you add green amenities, that potentially may exacerbate that. So in unfortunately, in some places, the, the connection um, between these greening projects and what is now called green gentrification is fairly strong. Places like uh, Philadelphia have uh, and Miami have in some ways traced these sorts of historic investments in in, in like improving these disparities, uh, actually displacing the people that should benefit from them. And 
I think, you know, when we, when we talk about these kind of climate change and, and urban heat or flood risk solutions, we should really be looking at it holistically around the experiences of these folks. Um, it's, you know, two lives in the same city, uh, one growing up in a red line neighborhood and one growing up in a green line neighborhood by selecting only one menu item when we should be taking the entire buffet, uh, we might unintended, we might, that might result in really unintended negative consequences, basically, you know, exacerbating the trauma related to these intergenerational decisions like redlining. We've spoken today about uh, exacerbating heat and heat waves in these neighborhoods, the risk of flooding, pollution, what are you looking at next? I can tell you're you're pumped up about this subject. Uh, I assume it continues to be on your research agenda. What's what's the next question that you're trying to answer? It's kind of a, a an interesting question to ask because I think there's only so much time that we can spend pointing out what's wrong before really getting more interested in how do we best uh, engage, empower. Um, and seed our, you know, power as institutions of, of knowledge to the lived experiences of those people who live there, how to expand housing options without displacing individuals. How do we actually uh, listen very deeply to the voices of those people that live in these neighborhoods and answer their most pressing needs first before answering the needs that we feel and might project on them. So yes, we love trees, but we don't have any sidewalks. That's a common conversation here in the city of Richmond. It's like, we love the trees, but it would be really nice to have a safe place to walk between my house and the store. Or they might not even have a grocery store, <laughs> you know, to begin with. So we know that many of these redlining areas are food deserts as well. So from that perspective, I'm super excited about researching and sharing successes, best practices, uh, and, and, and kind of models for scaling up what works in one place um, so that we don't have to recreate the wheel everywhere, while also recognizing that the local context is going to drive whether or not a particular project is going to be successful. Yeah, there's not going to be a one-size-fits-all solution to this in every community in, in the country that was impacted by redlining. Correct. And I think if we if we think that that's the case, if we move forward with making decisions across the board uh, without the input and, and voice and vision of those most affected by those decisions, we are not doing anything better than redlining was. Jeremy, you... You're a climate scientist, but we just had a conversation that was predominantly about housing inequities and and historic, uh, you know, investment. Did you see yourself like, like when you were studying, you know, up until this point in your career? Could you see this trajectory happening? I think that this was a was a a process of becoming aware of my history orienting myself to what I was doing as a climate scientist and recognizing that, you know, really what we're talking about here is something that exists. The, the disparity in flood risk and heat risk in our cities, that would exist whether or not climate change was going on. 
that's the most, I think that's a really important thing for, for your listeners to, to, to think about is that even if climate change wasn't making heat waves longer, stronger, more intense, even if climate change wasn't adding more water vapor to this spongier atmosphere and causing more intense rainfall events, even without that in the picture, there are people in your city growing up in places that have hotter heat waves, experience more intense uh, flood risk, and have dirtier air than you do, even without climate change in the picture. So I think learning about this has opened my eyes to the overlapping and intersecting issues, not only just that climate change poses, but really what the history of our cities, cities don't happen by mistake. And the confluence of those two things could enable this really vibrant, equitable, beautiful, you know, future for everyone in a place. And if that's, that's worth my time, I'm going to continue dedicating myself to it. That's Jeremy Hoffman. He's an interdisciplinary climate scientist at the Science Museum of Virginia in Richmond and the co-author of a recent paper on the long-term effects of redlining on environmental risk exposure. Jeremy Hoffman, thank you. Thank you so much, Matthew. Um, Really appreciate your invitation. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us on UPR every Thursday morning at 1030 and on KCPW at 10 on Thursday and noon on Sunday. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our program is supported by public radio listeners like you. So if you're a donor to Utah Public Radio or KCPW in Salt Lake City, we want to thank you. And if you're not, why not? Head over to upr.org and click on the donate link and make sure in the comments you let them know that you're a supporter of this program. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. Big ideas.